This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight we're going to be primarily in the book of Lamentations, but you can turn first to Jeremiah 52, which is the last chapter in the book of Jeremiah. Most of us are probably familiar with Isaiah 53. Uh, It talks about a man who is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a man who is oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. It says that he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now this is one of those prophecies. And it's interesting to try to look at the Old Testament and say, how would I be looking at this if I didn't know any of the New Testament stuff? All right? If I was before that and I'm just hearing this prophecy, how would I interpret that? How would I understand that? And so the Jews wondered about who Isaiah 53 might refer to, who is being, being talked about here. Um, and even, we even see this in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, he's reading this passage, and he asks Philip, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? So he's thinking, is Isaiah talking about himself? Is there someone else he's talking about? Who is this guy that's being talked about here who's despised and, and rejected and, and all of these things? Who is this? Now, we understand through the lens of the gospel records that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. And that's clear to us now because we have the New Testament. And we look at back at Isaiah 53 and we see all these things and we're saying, oh, absolutely, it's crystal clear to me that this is talking about Jesus. But, and, and we know these words reflect the sorrow and suffering of our Savior, but the Jews didn't know that before Jesus came. And F.B. Meyer says that some Jewish commentators took that 53rd chapter of Isaiah and they applied it to the prophet Jeremiah. Now think about it. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man who knew what it felt like to be a lamb brought to the slaughter. Now they they were misinterpreting, misapplying that, but with some of these verses it's not hard to see why they would do that. And nowhere does the grief and sorrow of Jeremiah come out more strikingly than in the book of Lamentations. Now, as we look at the book of Lamentations, I want to acknowledge that nowhere in this book does it tell us that the writer is Jeremiah. Um, I don't think we have much cause to doubt that it is Jeremiah, and, and for several reasons. One, the style of Jeremiah's prophecy and of this book of Lamentations are very, are very similar. There are certain details included in the book of Lamentations that seem to suggest that Jeremiah is the one who's writing. And we'll even, we'll even see some of those tonight. Uh, also, in, in 280 BC, the Septuagint was translated. You've probably heard of the Septuagint. That was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so this happened before Christ. This was the translation used by uh, Jesus quotes from the Septuagint. This is what many were using in Jesus' day, um, those who were more familiar with Greek than Hebrew. And in that translation, in the Septuagint, 
uh, it gives this introduction to the book of Lamentations. It says, and it came to pass after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem made desolate, Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented this lamentation over Jerusalem. Lamentations is a poetic book. Uh, it follows actually a distinct poetic structure. So there are 22 letters in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. And the, in this book of Lamentations, chapters 1, 2, and 4 are each 22 verses long. And each, uh, in each one of those, each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2 starts with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on. Uh, chapter 3 is 66 verses long, and it's got sets of three verses. So in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 all start with Aleph, which is the first letter of he the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter, uh, verses 4 through 6 all begin with Bet, which is the second letter, and so on. And so there's this, this distinct poetic structure that's followed. Chapter 5 is 22 verses long but it doesn't follow that same alpha, alphabetical um, order. But this is, this is following, so if you were reading this in Hebrew, that would come through in a way that obviously it doesn't for us in English. And this book is written as poetry, but it's also very personal. And it is still prophetic as well. There are messages that are being given to the people of Judah, challenges being given to them even through this book. And like some of his prophecies, Jeremiah also mixes prayer to God in with his message in the book of Lamentations. So it's a very unique book. Um, but without any more introduction, let's go ahead and dive in. And we're going to begin, before we get to Lamentations, by considering the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, you're in Jeremiah 52, and for quite a while we've been leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. In a sense, Jeremiah's whole ministry leads up to this point. Over and over again, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He's talking about the judgments that's coming. And this is kind of the, the focal point it's all leading to, and now finally it's happening. Uh, Jeremiah 52 serves as a historical bookend to the book of Jeremiah. And so it actually is, is a near-identical copy of 2 Kings 25. So if you have 2 Kings 25 here open, and you've got Jeremiah 52 open here, they're, they, the wording is almost identical. Um, and so the, the book of Jeremiah is finished off with this historical telling of the end of Judah. It kind of finishes it all out with historical context of his prophecy. Uh, and we're going to go ahead and begin in verse 1. And this is backing us up a little bit as Zedekiah is introduced as the king. But it will help us to start there and just follow through and see what happens here. So Jeremiah 52, verse 1, Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, till he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Zebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and built forts against it round about. So the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And in the fourth month, 
In the ninth day of the month, the famine was sore in the city, so that there was no bread for the people of the land. Then the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled, and went forth out of the city by night, by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were by the city round about, and they went by the way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king, and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they took the king, and carried him up onto the king of Babylon to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. And the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He slew also all the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So for 18 months, the city of Jerusalem endured a full-out siege from the Babylonians. And then in the middle of the night one night, when King Zedekiah realizes that the city is falling to the Babylonians, he takes his family, he takes his court, and he tries to run. Well, the Babylonians find out about it. They give chase. The court scatters. Zedekiah and many of them are captured. And King Zedekiah is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. Now think about this. King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who put Zedekiah on the throne. He said, you're going to be the king, but obviously there's a caveat here. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Zedekiah, you'll be the king, but I'm still in charge. Well, Zedekiah, after about eight and a half, nine years of that, says, I'm tired of this. And he rebels against, against Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why this siege happens. So now Zedekiah, this guy who was put on the throne by King Nebuchadnezzar, has had to be captured by Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Josephus tells us that Nebuchadnezzar gave Zedekiah quite an earful. He, he chided him for rewarding him this way, for making him Judah's king. And then, famously and tragically, Nebuchadnezzar commands that Zedekiah's sons and advisors be killed while King Zedekiah watches, and then he puts out Zedekiah's eyes. Zedekiah is put in chains and carried off to Babylon. If we were to continue reading in Jeremiah 52, we'd see where it goes on to talk about the city's landmarks being burned, her walls being broken down, her citizenry being taken into captivity, and there's only a very small group that's left behind. And so, the book of Lamentations begins, how doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? The contrast is staggering between what the nation was and what it has become, what this city was and what it has become. And the fall that has been long foretold has come to pass. And that's the context then. Jeremiah 52 kind of gives us the historical context for the book of Lamentations. Uh, I'm going to give you here on the screen a, a, a simple breakdown of the book of Lamentations. So if you were to take it chapter by chapter, th there's obviously some overlap in themes here, but these are kind of the things that come out strongly in each chapter. Um, we're not going to take time, of course, to go verse by verse over the whole book. Uh, we're going to look at a few specific passages, but I wanted to kind of give you this idea of the general overview. So chapter 1, the plight of Jerusalem, it focuses on the state of Jerusalem, the state of this city, what has happened. 
chapter 2 talks about the wrath of God. It focuses on the reason that this judgment has fallen, the reason that Jerusalem is in the state that it is. Chapter 3 um, focuses on Jeremiah himself. It focuses on his pain, his suffering, the, the bitterness that he feels over what's happening, and also how he is trying to instruct the people to process this. Chapter 4 focuses on how greatly the city has changed. There's a lot of contrast in chapter 4 about what the city was and what it has become. And then chapter 5 uh, is a plea for mercy. It focuses on crying out to God for his intervention. So this is a general overview, something that might help you as you read through the book to be thinking about these themes. Um, that's just the basic layout. We're going to go ahead and begin tonight in chapter 4 as we get into Lamentations. Chapter 4, we're going to look at the lament for the nation. Jeremiah has witnessed the sad destruction of his city. He was still imprisoned when Jerusalem fell. So, no doubt, he was witness to some of the horrific and heart-rending scenes that accompanied its capture. He was there. There was no escaping for Jeremiah. He was in prison. And as the city falls, he's set free from his prison. And it's amazing to me, and I don't remember exactly how much I've said about this, but the Babylonians single Jeremiah out when they come to the city. They know who Jeremiah is. And the captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, he knows who Jeremiah is. And he goes looking for him. And he specifically frees Jeremiah from, from prison and makes sure that he's taken care of. And offers to Jeremiah, you can stay here if you want. You can go to Babylon if you want. We're going to take care of you. And I love that about this. Because not only does it show us that Jeremiah's ministry had a wide impact. So these people in Babylon knew about Jeremiah. They knew about this guy who was prophesying in Judah. But even more strikingly, it shows us God's faithfulness. It's not just that they come to the prison and say, eh, we'll let all the prisoners go, whatever. No, they come and, and he comes and he says, where's Jeremiah? I want to make sure that we let Jeremiah go. I want to make sure he gets the care that, that he deserves. And God is caring for Jeremiah in a very faithful and special way here. I, I love that about this story, but he's set free. And I can just imagine as he's set free, Jeremiah walking around the city and, and seeing the destruction. And maybe I take my imagination too far, but I can picture him. He's staggering around the city and he just it's just so overwhelming. He, he has to sit down and he's considering all that's going on. And he's just shocked. He's filled with grief. He looks at his once beautiful city, now reduced to rubble. And I don't know if he was actually looking out over the city as he wrote the book of Lamentations. Uh, many think he was. But whether or not he was actually looking at the city as he writes, it's clear that the Im that image, these scenes, are fresh in his mind as he pens these words. Here in Lamentations 4, he, he, he considers the loss of glory that the city has experienced. He says in verse 1, How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold, how are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter? 
So he's saying that which used to be held in high esteem is now of little or no value. The temple, which the Jews had so dearly valued, we talked about in early lessons how, how much they, they looked at the temple and they thought, we've got the temple and so we're set. And it was this great image of, of national pride. It was this, this, this image of everything that Israel stood for and now it's gone. It's reduced to rubble. All the treasures have been stripped from the temple. Uh, it's been set on fire. Whatever was flammable has burned. And Jeremiah seems to suggest that even the Babylonians went and knocked down the walls of it as well. And so it's just, it's just a pile of, of stones now. And then he talks about the nobles of Judah. He compares them in their heyday to fine gold. Rich and important and, and impressive but now they're like everyday pottery vessels. The glory is gone. Jeremiah also reflects on the horrors of hunger. Now, these next verses are enough to turn your stomach. He talks about what happened in the city during the siege. Verse 4, The tongue of the sucking child cleaveth to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask bread, and no man breaketh it unto them. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace dunghills. In verses 9 and 10, they that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. For these pine away, stricken through for want of the fruits of the field. The hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. So Jeremiah vividly portrays the horror of starvation under the siege that Jerusalem endured. Where to die by the sword would seem like a mercy to escape the horrors of this hunger, this famine. What is most tragic to see here is the plight of the children. He talks about babies with their tongues sticking to the roof of their mouths. Little children asking for a little bit of bread and no one listening to them, no one offering them anything. He talks about mothers cooking their own children for meat to keep themselves alive. It's horrible stuff. It's nightmarish. And it makes us to shudder, shudder to even read about it. And yet this is what Jerusalem was reduced to. And we're not going to go there tonight, but it's really shock, shockingly on target with what God said in Deuteronomy 28 about what would happen to Israel if they failed to follow his law. And I encourage you to, to jot down Deuteronomy 28, 49 through 58. And there's more there in that chapter as well. But specifically we see those verses coming true in staggering detail here as Jerusalem is under siege. That shows us, of course, the reason for the destruction. Who brought destruction on Judah? Well, it was ultimately the Lord. Jeremiah says in verses 11 and 12, The Lord hath accomplished his fury. He hath poured out his fierce anger, and hath kindled a fire in Zion, and it hath devoured the foundations thereof. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. Says, this is shocking to the international community. Why? Because God was 
the guardian of Israel. It used to be that Israel was known among the other nations because God protected them. God watched over them. You think about when they first came to the promised land and the fear that came over the people because they knew God is with these people. And now the people who, whose God was their guardian, their God has turned against them in judgment. And God has sent this on Jerusalem and on the people of Judah. Why did the Lord bring this on them? Well, it's because of their sin. Verses 13 and 14 for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. They have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood so that men could not touch their garments. Jeremiah has been warning about this all along. But he reiterates here that this is not just a sad event that's been brought on by wicked Babylon. This is the hand of God in judgment. For the sins of his people. This is a sampling. Uh, I'm sorry. This is God fulfilling what he has been saying through Jeremiah all along. And he's responding as he has promised to respond to their sin. So these verses here give us a sampling of the lament that Jeremiah offers for his nation. But let's turn our attention to a more personal chapter in this book. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 3 as we consider the tears of the prophet. So in, in chapter 4, he was drawing this, this contrast between how the city used to be, the glory that was there, the blessing that was there, and now what it has become. In chapter 3, this is a very interesting chapter to read through because in some ways it marks the journey of Jeremiah's heart as he's trying to process what's happening. And you can see the, the battle that's going on within him even through this chapter. It also seems to show us the roller coaster of emotions that he's experiencing as he reels from the shock of the fall of the city. And I think this is an interesting and, in, and interesting place to go, and, and it's helpful. It teaches us to consider how a godly person processes grief and shock. Because there's a lot of honesty here, but Jeremiah is trying to process this the right way. He's trying to bring his perspective back to where it needs to be. So let, let's work our way through this chapter then. Uh, beginning in, in the verse, first 20 verses, we're not going to read them all, but um, we see his pain under God's wrath. So Jeremiah says, beginning the chapter, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me, and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turned his hand against me all the day. So Jeremiah too is suffering under the hand of God. This judgment is hurting him too. It's not just hurting those who've gone into captivity. It's not just hurting those who have lost their homes. This is hurting Jeremiah. And these things that are happening, he says, God is bringing me into the darkness rather than the light. He feels betrayed by God. Like God is continuing to bring sorrow upon sorrow into his life. 
He says in verses 12 through 15, He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. When he says he's their song, that's the idea of being, they're, they're, they're mockingly singing at him. They're, they're, they're deriding him. They're joking at him. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. Jeremiah has spent all these years as a derision, a target for mockery. It's truly been a bitter experience for him. Back in Lamentations 1, Jeremiah seems to weep over the fact that this is all connected to his prophetic ministry. And so you think about where Jeremiah is at at this point. He's been prophesying this all along. Of course, he's only been obeying God, but now it all comes and, and he can't help but thinking, is this in some part my fault? I've been prophesying about this all along and now it's happening. And Am I, am I to blame? Am I partially at least to blame for this? And that seems to be weighing on him as well. But he's watching all this pain. He's watching all this suffering. He's been through so much through his ministry. And now some of that is lifted. He's been set free from prison. He's no longer being attacked by his own people. And yet it's like God has brought him out of one sorrow only to put him in another sorrow. And he says, it's like God is against me. It seems so wrong. It seems so unfair. The type of pain he's experiencing has changed, but his is still a life of great pain. And now, instead of just weeping over his own plight, he's weeping over the plight of his whole nation. These verses are filled with pain, and like Job, Jeremiah struggles with putting the blame on God, with accusing God of mismanaging his affairs. He's fighting with this. But there's a turn in verse 21. In the middle of all this pain, there is hope. In what, is pro- what are probably the best known verses in this book, Jeremiah says in verses 22 to 26, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. He says in verses 31 and 32, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Now remember last week, God had made it clear to Jeremiah that there is hope. And Jeremiah has not forgotten that. God has not changed. His nature is ever the same. His mercy and his compassion are ever fresh. And Jeremiah has to realize, even in this pain, the Lord is showing his mercy. Yes, this is really hard and this is bitter and and I'm really struggling this, but... It is with the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It's still the Lord's mercy that's upholding me, even in this. And he says, the Lord wants those who will seek him. Those who will quietly wait for his salvation. The Lord delights in that. We even even, uh, reflected on that last week. The Lord is looking for those who will seek him. 
The Lord is looking for those who will look to him even in the midst of this. And so in the midst of this pain, there is hope. And then, after reflecting on that, Jeremiah issues a call to the people. In verses 37 through 39, Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good? Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? So he asks some rhetorical questions here. He's saying, who can say this is going to happen, and it happens when the Lord has not made it happen? In other words, who can do something that's outside the control of God, outside the sovereignty of God? No one can. No one can say, I'm going to do something and God can't control me in that. God, God's not in charge of this bit over here. He says, lost my place, sorry. And he also reflects on God's, you know, he, he's saying, who are we to question the ways of God? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Are there not going to be things that God does that we say, oh, this is wonderful. And other things that God does and we say, that's not what I wanted. Why would God do this? There is both evil and good that comes from God in our perspective. It's all good in his great plan. And so he says, why would we complain about what's happening in our lives when God is in control of it all? When God is in charge, when he's calling the shots? Who are we to complain about, about the part that we get, about the punishment that we get for our own sins? He said, how could the living man complain? Going back, if you're alive, you're experiencing the mercy of God. He goes on in verses 40 and 41, Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. So there is, even in this lamentation, a call to the people of the land. There is hope. So rather than collapsing in despair, Jeremiah is calling on the people to seek God and to turn their hearts back to him. God has not changed, but the people have. They need to turn. And after this call, Jeremiah offers um, a prayer to God. Verses 42 through 54. And here we really do see Jeremiah just opening up his heart to God. He begins by airing his grievance to God. Verse 42. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain. Thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Thou hast made us as the offscouring and refuse in the midst of the people. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare is come upon us. Desolation and destruction. Jeremiah is wondering here about the ways of God. He's reflecting on what God has done. And at least on some level, he's questioning its severity. He says, you have done all of this, God. And in that, there's a question. Why? Why so severe? Why so, so difficult? Why is, the, why is this so painful for us? Why would you send this on us, God? I think that even in this, Jeremiah realizes 
that some of the, this is just the overflowing of a heart that is struck by tragedy. And I think even as he's saying this, that he knows that his thinking is not completely clear. I think he understands this is something I'm wrestling with and I'm not there yet. I, I need God's perspective. I don't have God's perspective yet. I'm just really struggling with this on an emotional and a human level. Because as he goes on, he just begins to honestly express his grief to God. He says, mine eye runneth down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mine eye trickleth down and ceaseth not without any intermission. Till the Lord look down and behold from heaven. Mine eye affecteth mine heart because of all the daughters of my city. Mine enemies chased me sore like a bird without cause. They have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters flowed over mine head. Then I said, I am cut off. Jeremiah is profoundly sad. His tears will not stop. His heart is broken. His experience has been bitter. And his life seems to be over. But again, in this chapter, there's a turn. This time, he begins to give testimony of God's mercy. In verse 54, 55, I'm sorry. He recalls, I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou saidst, Fear not. O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. So Jeremiah has a story to tell, and it's his own. He has called on God before, and God has heard him. He was in the bottom of a pit, sinking into mud, despairing of life, and God heard him and sent an Ethiopian servant to rescue him from that pit. He was imprisoned while the city of Jerusalem was under siege, and God sent the Babylonian captain of the guard to set him free. Again and again, God has protected Jeremiah. He has helped him at the lowest moments of his life, and Jeremiah has a testimony to give. A testimony that encourages him even as he calls on God once again in his sorrow. Because Jeremiah says, this is what's going on right now and I'm really struggling with it. And I don't know why God would allow this to happen. And my sorrow is just beyond what I can express. But I've called on God before and he's always been there. God has always helped in those lowest times of my life. There's never been a time when I've called on God and he has not heard. And I can look back on so much of God's blessing and mercy in my life and I believe that even as Jeremiah shares this testimony, it encourages and strengthens his own heart to say, even in this, I can trust the hand of God. Even in this pain, this overwhelming sorrow that I'm, that I'm experiencing now, God is there. And when I cry to him, God hears. And I may not see the light. I may not see where, what way forward there is from here. But God is still in control. And there is a way forward in his grace. And so Jeremiah shares this testimony of God's mercy. And then... Interestingly, he closes out this chapter with a call for God's vengeance. 
He says in verses 59 through 66, O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong, judge thou my cause. Thou hast seen all their vengeance and all their imaginations against me. Thou hast heard their reproach, O God, O Lord, and all their imaginations against me. The lips of those that rose up against me and their device against me all the day. Behold, they're sitting down and they're rising up. I am their music. Again, this idea that they're, they're laughing at him. They're making a joke out of him. Render unto them a recompense, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them sorrow of heart, thy curse unto them. Persecute and destroy them in anger from under the heavens of the Lord. This is another one of those passages that I struggle with as Jeremiah calls for God's judgment on his enemies. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly what to do with this. Jeremiah's heart, on the one side we see his heart is broken for his people. And then on the other side, he's calling for God's judgment on those who have wronged him. And we say, how, how do we reconcile these things in Jeremiah's life? How do we see a man who's, who's compassionate and brokenhearted for his people, and also a man who would pray a prayer like this against his enemies? How do these things go together? Well, I think the closest we can come is to try to consider the heart of God. How many people on earth does God love? It's all of them. How many of those without Christ does he send to everlasting punishment in the lake of fire? How do those two things go together? And they've responded to his call in a specific way. But it's still hard for us to say, I, I, you're absolutely right, but it's still hard for us to take those two things and say, how are these two things in God's heart at the same time? But they are. Where do judgment and mercy meet? And all I can say is that God loves and he delights to redeem, but he is also completely satisfied to send sinners to their just judgment. It's not that God is okay with the one and not okay with the other. God is completely satisfied with either. God loves mercy and justice. And all I can say about Jeremiah here is that it's clear that he too loved both mercy and justice. I don't understand how these things, exactly how they mesh in the heart of God. I don't understand exactly how these things meshed in the heart of Jeremiah. But I do know that we as servants of God need to have a heart that is broken over those around us. Even as they experience the judgment for their sin, we ought to be broken hearted over that. And yet we also need to have an understanding that no one goes unguilty to judgment. The judgment that God sends is always just. It is always right. There is no one who's going to spend eternity in the lake of fire who does not deserve it. And that is hard sometimes for us to be able to say.
especially when those people are people that we know and people that we love. But these are things that come together in the heart of God and they are things we need to understand about God and things that we have to try to hold in tension as we consider these subjects ourselves. As we draw our study of this sorrowful book to a close, let's consider chapter 5. And there we find the cry for mercy. This final chapter is worded like the people are coming together. This isn't just Jeremiah. It's like the, the people of Judah together crying out to God. In verse 1, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. And then they go on to delineate what has happened in the land. All these things that have come upon Jerusalem and Judah. And then in verse 19, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Turn thou unto us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old, but thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. So the lamentations end with a cry to God. They present the state of the nation and they call on God to see and to intervene. It's as if Jeremiah and the remnant are saying, we are turning back to you. Please keep your promise and turn back to us. And that is the heart with which this book comes to a close. I mentioned two weeks ago that a man named Gedaliah became the governor of Judah after Jerusalem fell. And I want to fill in a few blanks here for the life of Jeremiah as we, consider, as we continue to, to bring his life to a close. So as this happens, the dust settles from the destruction of Jerusalem. A group begins to gather around Gedaliah. And there's this, this small number of people that are in the land They've been left there to continue to care for the fields. And they begin to become organized. And we find that Gedaliah was a good and gracious leader. And Jeremiah was blessed to be able to serve alongside him. But unfortunately, we find that Gedaliah was too trusting. Among those who were gathering around Gedaliah, um, I'm going to mention two in particular. One was a man named Ishmael. And the other was named Johanan. Now, Johanan comes to Gedaliah, and he warns him that Ishmael is actually an agent of the nation of Ammon. So the nation of Ammon has noticed what's happened in Judah, and they think this is our opportunity. If we can, there's just this small group left, if we can mess things up in Judah, then we could take some of this land for ourselves. There's just this small group there, not much defense. Babylon's probably not paying too much attention to what's going on there right now. If we can stir things up, then we can take advantage of this opportunity. And so Johanan says Ishmael is actually from the nation of Ammon. And the king sent Ishmael to kill you, Gedaliah, so that they could kind of overthrow what's going on here and they could take over. Gedaliah dismisses his suspicions, you know, says, Johanan, you're, you're just not trusting enough. All right, this is not, a, not an issue. Don't worry about it. Well, Johanan was right. And Ishmael ends up killing Gedaliah. Well, 
Johanan and the others who were who were faithful to Gedaliah, they were they were um, you know they're they're people of Judah. They they want to protect their nation. They go after Ishmael and they kill him. But then they're concerned and they think, oh no, the Babylonians are going to hear about this. They're going to hear that Gedaliah was killed. Then they're going to hear that we went after the guy who killed Gedaliah. And they're going to start to think, you know what? These people in Judah are causing too much trouble. And they're going to send their army here and they're going to wipe us out and it's going to be all over for us. And so they're afraid this is going to happen. And they talk about it and they ask Jeremiah about it. And Jeremiah warns them. He says, don't, go to, don't, don't leave the land. They want to go to Egypt. They say, we'll go to Egypt, we'll be protected, we won't have to worry about Babylon. Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. Stay in the land, God will protect you, God will watch over you, he's got this. You didn't listen to me before, but listen to me now. Well, the same story as of old, they ignore what Jeremiah has to say. They go to Egypt, and they take Jeremiah with them. And so, as the, as the, the biblical door closes on Jeremiah, he's being taken with this small group into Egypt. And that's kind of how he fades off the scene. We'll consider some other things next week. But even after the fall of Jerusalem, sorrow seems to continue to follow this prophet. And it's sad to read this and see, even after this, even, even after all has come true, he continues to Get Elias killed, he's taken off to Egypt, still nobody's listening to him, even after all that. On the north side of the city of Jerusalem is a hill, and at the base of that hill is a site known as Jeremiah's Grotto. Now, we have tradition only to go on here, but many would say that that is the site where Jeremiah sat and wept over the city of Jerusalem. It's there, they tell us, that he penned what is no doubt the saddest book in the Bible, the book of Lamentations. They say that's the spot, that's the site where Jeremiah sat and wrote this book. And it's not hard to imagine Jeremiah standing on that hill, overlooking Jerusalem, stretching his hands out over the city, and crying out, Why? Why Jerusalem? Why would you not listen? F.B. Meyer says that though for 40 years he was constantly in antagonism with the sins and vices of the people, the fountain of tears within his soul seems never to have dried up or become frozen over. Even after 40 years, he still has a heart for the people. This still goes deeply into Jeremiah when this happens. F.B. Meyer says he preached the terrors of Sinai with the pathos of Calvary. And this is the thought from which I get the title of this whole study, Brokenhearted Boldness. Because the terrors of Sinai, the law, the, the severity with which the law was given, even I mentioned Deuteronomy 28 where God says, you disobey and this is what's coming. That kind of severity comes out in the, in the ministry of Jeremiah, but he also has that compassion, that love, that care for the people that was exhibited in Christ. But back to that hill. About six centuries after Jeremiah, some tell us, 
another man climbed that same hill. And this man carried a heavy load, and he stumbled beneath it as he struggled to climb that hill. And he, too, stretched out his hands. And they were nailed to a wooden cross and dropped into place at the top of that hill. And that man, too, looked out over Jerusalem with sorrow and with love. And Jesus Christ gave his life that none would ever have to cry the bitter tears that Jeremiah cried without hope. Now again, we only have guesses and tradition to go on here, but many do believe that that same hill is where Jesus was crucified. And you can see it vaguely in the picture here. It's known as Skull Hill, which many believe goes together with Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And so they believe that this is the site where Christ died, and it's also the site where Jeremiah wrote the Lamentations. An interesting coincidence if it's true. But we certainly see the parallel between the hearts of these two men, as they both could have looked out over this city and considered what was going on there and wept over it. And Jeremiah held out hope but Jesus Christ offered hope. So that's the Lamentations of Jeremiah. And next week we're going to conclude our study considering Jeremiah's legacy. What is it that Jeremiah left behind? What is it that he was remembered for? And how even does his legacy continue today? That's what we'll consider next week. We'll consider the, the end of his life and how his ministry carried on even beyond the end of his life. And I hope it will be a, a, a profitable conclusion to our study. Any questions or comments before we pray tonight? Yes. I, I noticed when I was reading this about them going into Egypt, and it struck me how often in the Old Testament, we, well, even some in the New Testament, how people leave the the, Israel, the land of Israel and go down into Egypt when trouble comes. Well, and it's, you know, obviously there's some imagery there, but also it really is, Egypt was a picture of success and power in the, in the world of the Bible. And so... Um, people always considered Egypt to be a place where there was provision and a place where there were strong armies. And so when trouble comes, and you, you see God draw this, this contrast in Scripture where he talks about, don't go down to Egypt for help, call on me. Because that was the temptation. When things get tough, when we need somebody to defend us or we need some provision, Things aren't working out very well where we are and how things are right now. Let's go to Egypt because they'll be able to provide for us. Or they'll be able to give the army that's going to back us and help us in battle. And God kept saying, he says over and over again, don't, don't lean on Egypt for help, lean on me. And so I do think that's intentional both as a kind of a symbol, and we see Egypt as a symbol of the things of the world that we can depend on, that we can lean on. And even as we face trouble, where do we go for our strength? You know, where do we go for our help? And here, these people are thinking, oh, things could get bad. What should we do? 
we'll run to Egypt. Instead of, no, let's listen to what God is saying through Jeremiah and act on that. And so we do see that throughout Jeremiah, but I mean, like you said, all through the Old Testament. But, but, but I thought it was interesting that when, when Herod was killing the, the baby boys, that's where Joseph took his family to protect Jesus. Yeah. So I do think we, can, we have to be careful with any kind of imagery like that. Um, and and this, is, this is one of my Bible study pet peeves. Sometimes we get these things and we say, this stands for such and such in the Bible, and this stands for such and such in the Bible. Uh, not really. We can, things might symbolize certain things from time to time in different passages, but if you say, Egypt represents sin, well, what about when God calls the people to go into Egypt? So that's not necessarily true, um, but we do see that, that happening. Um, but it was a place, it, it's a place of separation from the rest of what's going on in that area of the world. And there's, there's a lot of different nations that were surrounding them. You know, you've got Moab and Ammon, Syria and Assyria and Babylon and all these different things going on. But if you can just get into Egypt, it's kind of like separated from the rest of it. And so um, that was, I believe, why God called them. They're kind of separated from all of what's going on there. But that could also be a temptation to people. Yeah, and he's he's not limited in who he will use, and we certainly see that. We'll we'll have a reminder of that again next week as well. But, uh, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this book of Lamentations. It is in many ways a difficult book, just because it's so full of uh, bitter sorrow. And parts of it are hard to read just thinking about the, the suffering that people went through, the pain that they were suffering, the pain even of the prophet Jeremiah. But Lord, thank you that even in that, even in the middle of that, we see hope. Because we see hope in, in who you are and in what you have done. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these lessons for ourselves. Help us have a heart like Jeremiah that is truly broken. Lord, help us not to, to lord it over those who are suffering the effects of their sin. Help us be brokenhearted for them. But Lord, help us as well to look to you through all of that. And guide us in that, we pray. Be with us tonight. Help us walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.